I do want to take an opportunity just to praise the Lord myself this morning. Um, our plans got changed yesterday, uh, as I mentioned in that prayer request, but it allowed my, me to take my wife out yesterday evening. We had a nice little dinner together. And then we went over into downtown Hickory and parked at the dojo and just decided to go walk a couple of miles. I wanted to try out a new pair of shoes to see how they felt on the pavement. And it's funny when you travel all over the world and you see all of these places and you go to all of these places and you explore all of these places and yet there are neat little gyms right here that you've driven by hundreds of times throughout your life and you never stop to look at them. And we discovered one of those last night walking around Hickory. I would encourage you if you have an opportunity there's a little park right there off of 127, right before you come to the uh, Science Center down there. And it's called the Sally Fox. Is that right? Arboretum. It's just a little old park, and they've recently beautified the, the uh, sidewalks in there. It's pretty small, but it's an arboretum, and there's a lot of different trees planted there. They must have been planted long ago. But they're very distinct and different trees. And there's interesting little QR codes that you can look up to read about those trees. And some of them are from more exotic places around the world. There's a giant tree over there that's a redwood, but it's not a California redwood. It's a different type of redwood that primarily grows in China. And just an interesting mix of trees that you don't really see around here. Now, those trees have been there since I was a child, driven by them time and time again and never stopped to notice. And I was just blessed by that last night. And I was reminded that in Isaiah 41, the Bible tells us that when you have lots of different unique and trees, unique trees planted and growing together, that it's an evidence of God's hand. In fact, it's something that awaits the millennial kingdom and the new the land of Israel when it's renovated at the coming of Messiah. The, the, the pine and the box elder and the shita tree and all of these trees will grow together. It'll be a giant arboretum. So I encourage you to go check that out in Hickory. And may it be for you as it was for us, just an opportunity to pause and praise the Lord. So I was thankful for that time I had with my wife last night. And I'm also thankful, and I praise God, I had an opportunity the other day, I was getting a new battery put in our car, just trying to, ounce of prevention's worth a pound of cure. So when you've been running on the same battery for 108,000 miles, and there's a bunch of battery acid dust on the outside of it, it might start good, you might not be having any problems, but it's probably a good idea to replace it. And I said, put a good one in there. I didn't realize when I said put a good one that it would be 130 bucks. First battery I ever bought to put in one of my cars was like $35. So, but I had an opportunity just to give testimony about why the car keeps coming in there with so many miles on it. And uh, just to talk about walking across America and why. And in the course of that, one of the young men I was talking to, he couldn't wrap it around his mind how a guy like me could just travel and be out on the road. And how you afford to live and, you know, do you have a job and, and, and these things. And I found myself kind of in a quandary. I didn't want to go into a whole lot of detail because it just goes over people's head. And in trying to search for an answer, I, 
you know, I came up with one thing. I don't owe a man a dime. If you don't owe a man a dime or a bank a dime, you really don't need that much to live off of. But the only response I could come up with is the Lord takes care of me. And I really couldn't think of anything else to say. And I just praise God for that. The Lord takes care of me. And just to be able to give that testimony and to just get a strange look in response, uh, the Lord takes care of me. So I was back up there the next day and he was asking me some more questions. So I just praise God for those things. And um, I praise God for this passage of Scripture this morning because it reminds us that the things that men covet and fight over and bleed for and lose everything over here just the pavement under our feet in that city that Abraham looked for, in that city that awaits us. Now, it's been a while since we've been in Revelation. January will be the 10-year anniversary, so will we finish? It'd be nice if the very last message was on the 10th year anniversary of the beginning of this thing. Now, all the messages are up online. I'll publish this later today, but it's been a while, and so I just thought we'd just read chapter 21. We're in chapter 21. Let's start at the beginning, and let's just read up to the point we stopped last. I think it was in September the last time. And let's just do a bit of review. And I think just reading these verses here ought to give us cause to praise God. You know, there's enough out there to be upset about. There's enough out there to vex our spirits about. There's enough out there that ought to make us feel like Lot in the city of Sodom. But there's also a lot in God's Word that, like the psalmist, ought to give us cause to praise Him. And we can praise Him when we read about the Lamb's wife in our future home. So let's start with chapter 21. Verse 1, And I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth were passed away, and there was no more sea. And I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Here John sees two things. After the overthrow of Antichrist, after Armageddon, after the return of Christ, John has shown two things. He sees a new heaven and a new earth. We talked about that. We talked about what no more sea means. There's no more barrier, waters above the firmament to separate us between us and God. He sees the new Jerusalem coming down from God out of heaven. This is God's residence, not just his presence, but his residence that comes down. It's the city. It's Abraham's dream. For he looked for a city which hath foundations, whose builder and maker is God, Hebrews 11. This is it. And then John hears two things in the next few verses. Verse 3, and I heard a great voice. Megaphone is the word there in Greek. Megaphone. He heard a voice like a megaphone. Some folks say, well, if you're a preacher, you shouldn't be a bullhorn preacher. You shouldn't preach through a megaphone. Well, why not? The voice John hears here is a megaphone, a great voice. Where we get the word from. Out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be with them and be their God. What will be that has never been? John sees what will be 
that has never been. God's resonance with men. That's what we're waiting for. We're not waiting for some Republican election and whatever, you know. We're waiting for God's residence to be with men. What manner of persons ought we be, Peter asked, seeing that everything here is going to be dissolved one day? What manner of persons ought we be? You don't even need me to answer that question. It's an obvious answer. What will be that has never been is the first thing he hears, and then it goes on to say, uh, and God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes, and there shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor, cr nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. What has always been will no longer be. So John hears that what has never been will be, and what's always been will no longer be. Praise the Lord. And then he hears a second voice, and he that sat upon the throne. Remember, we talked about this is God all in all after the great abdication that Paul references in 1 Corinthians 15. There's going to come a day after Jesus Christ has put all enemies under his feet. At the end of the millennium, when Satan is overthrown and the armies that surround the camp of the saints, the fire of God falls from heaven, all enemies are put under his feet. And the Bible says that even the Son will yield up uh, authority to the Father and submit to the Father that God may be all in all as it was in the beginning. The Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost, one. Let us make man in our image. So that's who's speaking here. At the end of it all, he that sat upon the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said unto me, Write, for these words are faithful, true and faithful. And then we get an invitation a final invitation. And he said unto me, It is done. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give unto him that is a thirst of the fountain of the water of life freely. One final invitation. Just before we get these great details about a future city, it's almost like God's saying, Come and get it. And remember we talked about that word freely? That's the first word that man from God, of the first word of God that man corrupted and changed and misquoted. Remember Eve? Satan came along. Well, God said, Eve said, yeah, God said we could eat of the trees of the garden. But she left out the word freely. God said you can freely eat of the trees of the garden, just not the tree of the garden of the knowledge of good and evil. And she just kind of left that out. Big mistake. Remember that a lot of the salvation that's preached today has preached in the spirit of Eve there in the garden. That concept of free. Salvation that's free but not cheap is left out. But God says, come to the fountain of the water of life and drink freely. He that overcometh shall inherit all things and I will be his God and he shall be my son. If we're going to inherit all things, why would we obsess about anything this world has to offer? Because God owns all of it. God owns the cattle on a thousand hills. Everything out here he owns. Can he not provide for his children? I was reading a testimony from years ago on my first bicycle ride. We've been kind of reading some of these. 
to the kids during our devotion. And I'd totally forgotten about this, but I wrote about how we had an unexpected bill come up on the road. I had a repair job I had to do to my truck. It cost $116 and some odd cents. Now, you got to remember, back when we first went on the road, I remember on that bicycle journey, I, we had one checking account, and there were 700 bucks in it. That's it. Now, things didn't quite, quite, cost quite as much. I mean, I could fill up that truck for about 30, 35 bucks, maybe even under 30. But we had 700 bucks in a checking account, and we were going out on the bicycle, not knowing how long we'd be out there. So when you got a $116 bill, it's kind of <laughs> like, Lord, you know, help us. And so subsequent to that, just right after that, we had gave, gave it to the Lord. I, it was one of those situations that it really was something I could have complained about to Toyota. And there was a repair that had been outsourced back in Mississippi that wasn't done right. But I remembered that I had witnessed to the two guys at that Mississippi place. And it was a great encounter. And I didn't want to complain about it because it would end up going back on them. And I didn't want anything to take away from those seeds. And so Jamie and I just gave it to the Lord. And it wasn't a few days later we ran into some Christians that we didn't know just out on the bicycle. They invited us to church, a little tiny church in northern New Mexico on that Sunday. And when I showed up to church, I discovered that I was preaching Sunday school and the main message. I learned when I arrived. <laughs> and that little tiny group of believers took up an offering. We didn't ask for it, and it was $117. And so God provided. You know, if we are in Christ, we've inherited all things, and we can trust Him. And then we get to that great disjunctive here, that fearful disjunctive. But, God gives an invitation, but, and then we have eight classes of people purposed for the lake of fire. The first of which, the first in line, which are the cowards. We talked about that extensively. We live in a day of cowards. You know, I shared that quote by Dietrich Bonhoeffer last week. What the, we need more than anything, and I believe it applies today here in America, is straight, direct, and honest men. Straightforward, direct, and honest men. That's what we need, people that will speak plain. I try to do that when I go out, and I would encourage us all to do the same. Because the fearful, the ones that are always afraid of what people think, they're first in line for hell. And that's a scary thought when we start thinking about our friends and family members outside the body of Christ. The fearful and unbelieving, the abominable and murderers and whoremongers and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars. That means the news media is in big trouble. That means the fake president's in big trouble. It means a lot of preachers behind the pulpits today who took money from the government to promote the COVID agenda. They're in trouble. They're in trouble. All liars shall have their part in the lake which burneth with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Then we get to verse 9. It's an aside. We have a very similar construction here that you see at the very beginning of 17. And there came unto me one of the seven angels which had the seven vials full of the seven last plagues and talked with me saying, Come hither, I will show thee the bride, the Lamb's wife. And so one of the angels that had the seven last plagues comes to John, but it's not the first time. It had happened earlier in chapter 17. <clears throat> 
And he had also said, come hither and I want to show you something. So here we have, come here a minute. We have this invitation and this warning. And then an angel says, come here a minute, let me show you something. But it's not the first time. Same thing happened in chapter 17. And we talked about chapter 17. We went back to it and looked at how that time John was said, come here, let me show you something. He wasn't taken to a high mountain. He was taken to the wilderness. He wasn't shown the bride, the lamb's wife. He was shown the whore, the fake church, who ushers in the beast, riding the beast in his puppy form. And we talked about how before we can understand and appreciate the true bride of Christ, we need to understand and recognize the whore. And the whore has risen in our nation. She's alive and well. She's got that chalice with the dregs, drunk on the blood of saints throughout history. She's arisen, and we need to be able to recognize her. A lot of these preachers out here today aren't the bride. They're the whore. The whore is infiltrated. You know, people used to speak of the whores as if it's only Roman Catholicism. No way. It's infiltrated all those denominations in our government and in our churches. We've got to understand and discern the whore. Then we can appreciate the true bride of Christ. We talked about that extensively. And then John is carried away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me that great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God. So in 21.10, and this is actually going to go into chapter 22 through verse 5, we see a detailed blueprint. God gives us a detailed blueprint of the bride, which is also a city, the heavenly Jerusalem. This is not the Jerusalem remodeled and renovated for Israel in the millennium that Ezekiel sees. And there's several key differences. Okay, This is the mountain of the Lord's house, the new Jerusalem, which dwells in the top of the mountains. And I believe this is not just in eternity future, that it also is present in the millennium. And we get some clues in the chapter. So we're in the midst of this detailed blueprint. I already talked about its descent, verse 10. We talked about its substance, verse 11, having the glory of God, and her light was likened to a stone most precious, even like a jasper stone, clear as crystal. We talked about its walls, and had a wall great and high, and had 12 gates, and at the gates 12 angels, and names written thereon, which are the names of the 12 tribes of the children of Israel. On the east three gates, on the north three gates, on the south three gates, and on the west three gates. Reminds me of the camp of Israel around the tabernacle. And the wall of the city had 12 foundations. And in them the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. So that's where we stopped last time. We stopped there at verse 14. And we stopped with the, uh, the city's walls. So today I want to proceed. I'd like to get through verse 21. I want to talk today about the city's dimensions. And we're going to talk about its construction. So last week we talked about discretion with regard to our Lord's resurrection. Today we're going to talk about dimensions with regard to the, the wife, the bride, the, the, lamb of, the, the lamb's wife. And so, let's look at verse 15. Let me get, my notes are all over the place here. Let me make sure. So the city's dimensions begins with verse 15 through 17. 
And he that talked with me had a golden reed to measure the city and the gates thereof and the wall thereof. In Ezekiel, the angel had a measuring reed. It was a measuring reed. Here we have a golden reed. In Ezekiel, we have a detailed blueprint given to the prophet to share with the people of Israel. And the purpose is, show them these things, it says in Ezekiel 43.10, that they might be ashamed of their iniquities. So maybe we need to keep that in mind as we read these things. God gave a detailed blueprint once in the Scripture. And maybe one element of our praising and rejoicing in these things is that the Lord would show us our iniquities and we'd be ashamed of being attached to this world. So here we have a, a golden reed versus the measuring reed of Ezekiel 40. Even the tools are gold. Men fight, fight wars down here over gold. People, some of the stupidest business decisions people ever made in the history of America was to go west to find gold. And gave up everything. Men walked away from their families and their children with promises of riches and went out there to California. Remember the 49ers? Some went up to the Yukon and Alaska and countless souls perished in the pursuit thereof. People disappearing, people murdering one another, going out to California. One of the reasons California is so liberal in such a cesspool of iniquity today is because its initial settlement was sown in the greed and the debauchery and the immorality of the gold rush. And guys, when spirits get a foothold in places and those sins are never repented of, they hang around. California was doomed to be what it is for America today a teacher of all that is immoral because that's what she was founded to be. It was the gold rush. Men fight wars. They, they uh, throw away everything in pursuit of gold. But in this place that we're reading about today, it's what the tools are made of. It's common. It's a common thing. Verse 16, we get into some specifics. And the city lieth four square, and the length of it is as large as the breadth. And he measured the city with the reed, the golden reed, 12,000 furlongs. The length and the breadth and the height of it are equal. So four, four, four square here, you know, is speaking about a grid or a four plan. <laughs> Okay, it lieth. That means it lies outstretched on the ground. Okay? Some read this to mean, well, it's, it's automatically a cube of some sort. No, that's not what it's saying. Four squares referring to its surface area. It's outstretching on the ground. It lieth. So its, its surface area is 12,000 furlongs. The length, the width, and the height are equal. Okay? So... Obviously, there's a geometric shape called a cube, and its length, width, and height are equal. But it's not the only geometric shape that has an equal length, width, and height. 12,000 furlongs. Well, furlong here is an English translation of the Greek stadion. 
come, it's where we get the word stadium. And there were eight stadia to a mile. A mile's about a thousand paces. And three miles was what was called a league. A league, if you ever hear that in old writings, is basically a distance a man could walk in an hour. About three miles. And I would say that that's accurate. I find that in our walking across America, in our pace, we roughly walk about three miles an hour. Now, we may walk faster sometimes, or we may get in conversations that slow us down. But somewhere between three and four, I think (coughs) four miles an hour in an hour would be very fast. So... Basically, we walk a league an hour, and that's been our pace throughout this entire walk. And it's been like that. I guess we haven't improved from the ancient Greeks. It's the same. So what that means is 12,000 furlongs would be about 1,500 miles. And so the surface area of this city is 1,500 miles by 1,500 miles, a square. Now, you need to keep in mind that The greatest distance from north to south in the contiguous United States is only 1,650 miles. So we're basically talking about a surface area from Maine to Florida and from the Atlantic coast about 600 miles beyond the Mississippi River. Now, if you were to get in a car and drive the shortest distance from, and it's pretty straight, It goes up and down a little bit. But from Cape Hatteras, where we started this walk in March of last year, all the way to the corner outside southwest city, Missouri, where we're headed next week, the shortest driving route is only 1,320 miles. So when we drive out there on Tuesday, we still won't be driving as far as it would be to move across this city. So that's a pretty large city. Now, commentators often look at these dimensions here and they say, this, is, this must be a symbol. This must be something spiritual. It can't be literal. It's impossible. It's impossible. It's impossible to do this or impossible to have that. It's impossible that the waters of the Nile were turned to blood. That doesn't happen. It was impossible that that many frogs would come up in the land. It must be some spiritual thing. You know, these scholars... There's no such thing as a Bible scholar. There's one Bible scholar, and his name is the Holy Spirit. Amen. A scholar has mastered his subject. I don't like the word in martial arts circles called master, because I'm not a master, I'm a perpetual student. And I don't like the word scholar in Bible study circles, because I'm not a scholar, and none of these other people that say impossible, impossible, impossible are either. We're students. There's one scholar, the Holy Spirit. But why is something automatically spiritual? Because it can't be possible, literally, in the minds of so many people. You know, an angel came to Mary and said that she was going to conceive the Son of God in her womb. She said, well, I haven't known a man. How is that possible? Well, the Holy Spirit's going to do it. You, did Mary act like the Bible scholar? Impossible. No, she said, be it unto me according to thy word. When I look and read this stuff, I don't get lost in architectural formulas and constructions. God's not a man. 
The things men fight and kill each other over, the things men value above everything else, just a pavement under God's feet. Impossible. When you hear somebody tell you something's impossible, therefore it must have an allegorical interpretation, beware. For with God, as the angel said, nothing's impossible. So I don't get caught up in all that stuff. When I read this, there's no reason for me to take it anything but literal. 12,000 furlong, just do a little math, 1,500 miles. The length equals the width equals the height. Now, it reminds me of a verse or a passage over in John 14. Remember when Jesus told his disciples, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many what? Mansions. Now, go pick up one of them new Bibles, one of them modern Bibles. They don't say mansions. They like to change it to rooms or apartments. Now, I found an, I found an interesting little note about that that I thought would be worth reading this morning. I think the ESV says rooms, okay? So, when we think about these dimensions, 1,500 miles by 1,500 by 1,500, Jesus said, in my Father's house are many mansions. Think about this. The silly scholars who want to translate monai, which is the Greek word in John 14 too, as rooms or apartments instead of mansions, obviously aren't acquainted with the place Christ is preparing for the Christian. The New Jerusalem is 12,000 furlongs on each side. There are eight furlongs or stadia, is the Greek word there, to a mile. So the city is 1,500 miles long, wide, and high. That works out to about 40,144,896,000 square feet. Consider, if you were to lay it down on North America, it would stretch from Miami, Florida, to Montreal, Canada, and from Washington, D.C. to Denver, Colorado. You could put all 6 billion... Now, this is a little bit older of a common comment. So I think there's 7 billion in the world today. But you could put 6 billion people living on earth today in that area and give each of them an acre of land with a ranch-style house, a yard, a garden, and a pond. But if you add the height to the calculation, you get a total volume of 500 quintillion cubic feet in the city. A quintillion is one with 18 zeros behind it. Even if you allow Eight billion Christians living in the city. That's four million a year for 2,000 years of church history. And that's a very liberal estimation. Eight billion Christians, you could give each one of them a house of 100,000 cubic feet. The average home has 10,000 cubic feet. So if that's not a mansion, I don't know what is. And still have nearly 50 quintillion cubic feet left for parks, Lakes, plazas, the throne of God, the river of life, and a large forest for the tree of life. You have to admit that's some city. So if there's any question about whether or not in my father's house are many mansions or rooms, well, you know, we'll just let the dimensions tell us that that old king, that old King James been right all along. Now that word from where we get the word mansions 
is also used in Revelation 13. I find it very interesting that when the beast, and we talked about this long ago, when the Antichrist blasphemes, okay, he blasphemes God, he blasphemes heaven, and he blasphemes another group of people, those that are dwelling in heaven. Now, that's not a reference to angels, the word dwell there is the same word that's related to what Jesus is, uses here for mansions. Antichrist is blaspheming the raptured saints during his rule. They've been raptured out and they're dwelling in heaven. So that's going to make Antichrist so mad that he blasphemes them as well. But it's in my father's house are many mansions. Many mansions, not just rooms. And with these dimensions, <coughs> that's an understatement. Now, a lot of people just assume that this city is a cubic shape because the length equals the width equals the height. But guys, that's not the only geometric shape that has an equal length, width, and height. What's the other? Does anybody know? A pyramid. A pyramid does. Now, I just find it interesting to think about there is a reference in Isaiah 19 to a, an altar of the Lord that's going to be appreciated and acknowledged in the land of Egypt in the last days. And it's spoken of as being in the midst of and at the border of Egypt. There's only one remaining ancient wonder of the world that can be seen today. <clears throat> All of the other ones, one of, one of the ancient wonders was the Hanging Gardens of Babylon. Those aren't around anymore. But there's only one that remains today that you can actually see. Does anybody know what that is? It's the Great Pyramid of Giza. And it's actually... <coughs> excuse me, I knew this would start. It's actually in the middle of Egypt. And it's on the border of what used to be Lower and Upper Egypt. It's the Great Pyramid of Giza. They say it was built about 2170 B.C. And Herodotus, the ancient Greek uh, historian, said that it took over it took 100,000 men 20 years to build it. It's an ancient wonder. And we don't really know much about who built it or why. Some have argued that it was the Hyksos that invaded Egypt that built it. Some have claimed that Job was part of that. This great pyramid was sealed and it wasn't until A.D. 825 that someone actually got inside of it. What was inside of it was a great mystery. It was just assumed it was a pyramid built for another pharaoh and it was full of treasure just as is typical there in Egypt. But a Muslim, a Muslim caliph in A.D. 825 dug a tunnel and he found his surprise that there weren't any riches in there. There was no furniture and all they found was an empty coffer in the king's chamber. There was no inscription, nothing. It was empty, basically. No treasures, not like the other pyramids. Later in 1865, a Scottish professor started taking measurements. And the measurements of the pyramid revealed a lot of things. It, it, it taught you how to find the value of pi, how to square the circle, 
You could determine a circle's circumference. You could determine the position of the polar star in the geographical center of the Earth. All of these mathematical, astronomical, and chronological things were revealed or confirmed by uh, measurements taken of this pyramid. It's very interesting. Um, Clarence Larkin, who I've referred to in this teaching on Revelation, did a lot of interesting diagrams and stuff about eschatology, and he lived before Israel was regathered into the land. And he has an interesting, uh, writes some interesting things about the Great Pyramid, but it's this mysterious thing. And some claim that it's put there as a witness, and it was put there as an ancient witness that won't be understood until later, and that it reveals or confirms a lot of things in, that are laid out in the scriptures in terms of God's plan and purpose for the ages. So I don't you know, really want to get into all of that, but I can't help but think of that passage in Isaiah, and perhaps this witness is a witness somehow to this new city of Jerusalem. Um, it's just an intriguing thing to think about because there is another geometric shape that has an equal length, width, and height. And I believe this new Jerusalem is a pyramid and not a cube. And I'll explain why. And I, I just do some reading on the Great Pyramid. It's very interesting. Um, it's very strange that there were no treasures in there. And so it wasn't a tomb. It was built for another purpose. And perhaps that purpose is related to the future. Isaiah 19, 19 through 21. But why would I say that this heavenly city is a pyramid and not a cube? Well, look at verse 17. We know the length, the breadth, and the height are equal. And then we see the angel measured the wall thereof, 144 cubits, according to the measure of a man, that is, of the angel. So 144 cubits, a cubit's about 18 inches, would be 216 feet. Now this must be referring to the height of the wall, not to the thick... I mean, I'm sorry. This can't be... <coughs> I'm sorry, I just lost my uh, train of thought. This must be referring to the height of the walls. Because if it's referring to its thickness and the city is a cube, then 216 feet thick, at least from man's perspective, wouldn't be able to support a wall 1,500 miles high and the city would be hidden from view. What kind of city bearing the glory of God, is hidden from view because of walls. The 216 feet must be referring to the height of the wall, not the city. If the city is a pyramid, the outer wall is 216 feet high, and the city and its pinnacle would, be, would remain visible from quite a distance. In fact, there's, there's kind of an interesting visual of this, I think, if you go back to those movies that were done based on J.R. Tolkien's Lord of the Rings trilogy, there's a city in there, the, the, the city of Minas Tirith in the realm of Gondor. 
And when I first saw that movie and I saw that city come in view, I was immediately reminded of Revelation 21. It has a wall, a huge wall, but the city itself is a pyramid. It goes high above the plain. Kind of interesting. I don't believe Hollywood. Hollywood's inspired by devils. And the devils know all this stuff to be true. And a lot of the imagery and stuff that comes from Hollywood comes right out of the scriptures, for good or for evil. And even the demons that followed Jesus around and followed the apostles around, they said and confessed things that were absolutely true. This is Jesus. Remember that girl that followed, demon-possessed girl that followed around Paul? These are, these are prophets of the Most High that teach us the way of salvation. So sometimes Hollywood just confirms what the Scripture says. There's an interesting uh, side note here that the angel measures this according to the measure of a man that is of the angel. Because angels, there's nowhere in the scripture that angels are women with wings. Got all that Catholic nonsense. Angels are not women with wings. There's only one place in the scriptures that speaks of women with wings, like a stork. And it says right there in that passage, this is wickedness. Zechariah chapter 5. And I saw two women with the wind in their wings. So angels are men. And an angel here is a man. Okay, has the appearance of a man. The seraphim and the cherubim have wings. But this idea of angels having wings and being women or even little babies sitting on... I mean, that's none of that stuff's in the scriptures. But here it's interesting that the measurement of a man is the same as a measurement of an angel. <coughs> verse 18, or ver- <coughs> I'm sorry. Verse 17, why is this a pyramid, not a cube? Well, the measurement given for the wall indicates the wall's height versus the city, not the wall's thickness. And then turn with me for a moment to Ephesians chapter 2. Remember when John sees the new Jerusalem, the angel doesn't say, come here, let me show you the new Jerusalem. He comes and says, come here, let me show you the lamb's wife. Okay? That's what he says. The lamb's wife, the bride. Uh, Turn to Ephesians 2. I think uh, this passage actually sheds light on what type of geometric shape we're talking about. And even God's shapes and patterns are never by accident. They reveal eternal truths. Ephesians 2, 19 through 22 speaks of the body of Christ, the bride, the Lamb's wife. Now, therefore, you are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints, And of the household of God. And are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Remember the foundations of the wall have the names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. In whom all the building fitly framed together groweth unto an holy temple in the Lord in whom ye also are builded together for an habitation of God through the Spirit. So the body of Christ, the Lamb, the Bride, 
Its chief cornerstone is Christ. And all of that building proceeds from Him, the chief cornerstone. Perfectly fit together. Built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Jesus Christ is the chief cornerstone. Now literally, in the original language, that means He's the extreme corner. The chief cornering of a building. This comes from Psalm 118. The stone that the builders rejected, the same has become the head of the corner. Israelis are familiar with this passage. It's called the Rosh Pinah, the head of the corner. So if you you say Rosh Pinah, a lot of Jewish folks will know what you're talking about. It's talking about that prophecy there in Psalm 118. The stone that the builders rejected, God said, would become the head, the topmost, the chief cornering, the head of the corner. Now, is there truly a chief cornerstone in any architectural construction that's not a pyramid? No. I mean, we, when I see cornerstones, I've often gone into old churches and stuff, and there'll be a, a stone here. And it's kind of maybe to the side. It's certainly not in the middle. It's certainly not in a prominent place, and there may be some etching on there that says this is the cornerstone of the building. And I always kind of wondered, like, this doesn't seem to fit the image. Like, if I think of Christ as that stone, something ain't right here. But when I think about a pyramidal form, the cornerstone truly is chief. It truly is topmost. The shape doesn't exist without it. And what's also interesting is that in a pyramidal form, the shape of the capstone or the chief cornerstone is actually the same shape as the building once the cornerstone is put on top of it. And so the cornerstone has the exact same shape as the entire building once the cornerstone is put on top. And isn't that what we are in Christ? We are to be conformed to his image. And we are. When he's our chief cornerstone. Sometimes that on a pyramid is called the capstone. To the capstone's angles, as it says here in Ephesians 2, all the building is fitly framed together. Once that capstone is put on a pyramid, the rest of the building is fitly placed and framed together. And it makes, like I said, a shape that mirrors the cornerstone or the capstone. The image I see here in Ephesians 2 is a pyramid, a spiritual pyramid. The body, as it says in Colossians 2.19, holding up the head from which the body is fit together. Its joints knit together. Colossians 2 talks about the same thing. The body holds up the head, and it's from the head that all the joints and bands are knit together. If you look at Psalm 118 and you look at the imagery with reference to Christ as the Rosh Pinah, the cheap cornerstone, the imagery is interesting. Psalm 118, 22 to 24, the stone which the builders refused (coughs) has become the headstone of the corner. That's that word Rosh Pinah in Hebrew. This is the Lord's doing, is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day which the Lord hath made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. Now, 
That verse gets quoted a lot just about, I wake up today, this is the day that the Lord has made. And that's true. But the chief application of that passage is the day when the refused cornerstone becomes the head of the corner. That's the day that God has made. And that's the day we can rejoice in. Think of the imagery here. Peter quotes Psalm 118. In fact, Psalm 118, these verses are quoted five times in the New Testament. Okay? Five times. It's very interesting. And Peter associates this verse with Christ, and he refers to the, 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 the stone that the builders rejected as a stone of stumbling or a rock of offense. That's in 1 Peter chapter 2. In Greek, it's a scandalon. Christ is a scandalon, a stone of stumbling. Now, the capstone of a pyramid is made first, usually, and it's going to be in the way of the workman until it's needed. A capstone isn't needed until the end, and it sits there, and it's in the way. It literally is a stumbling block and a rock of offense to the workmen that are trying to build the bottom of the pyramid. It's five-sided, and it has five points, and the sharpest point's always sticking up. When you have a sharp point sticking up, you don't want to stumble upon it. Now, consider something Jesus said. Jesus refers to this passage in Psalm 118, and he applies it to himself. Matthew 21, 42, Jesus said unto them, Did ye never read in the Scriptures the stone which the builders rejected, the same as become the head of the corner? This is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore I say unto you, and he's talking to the Jews who are rejecting the stone. He was the stone. He's talking to the Jews that were rejecting him. The kingdom of God shall be taken from you and given to a nation bringing forth the fruits thereof. Jesus is prophesying of the church that would predominantly become Gentile. And whosoever, verse 44, shall fall on this stone shall be broken. Think about that capstone sitting to the side while workers are building this pyramid. If somebody falls on that sharp point of that capstone, they're going to be broken. But on whomsoever it shall fall, it will grind him to powder. To powder. Anyone, any workman that falls on that capstone while it's sitting there waiting to be used is going to be injured. But if while the capstone is being lifted to place in its position atop the pyramid and it falls on someone, it's going to smash him to bits. I mean, that's the imagery right there that Jesus is using. So this image of Christ as the chief cornerstone refers to a pyramid shape <coughs> or a pyramid form. That's the only way any of this stuff makes sense. A pyramid is symbolic of the spiritual building of the church and what the body of Christ looks like. <coughs> where the body holds up the head and the body is fit together from the head. That's the spiritual building of the church. That's the imagery there. 
Christ is the chief cornerstone or the chief capstone. That's the problem with so many churches today is they got the capstone sitting off to the side. You know, they haven't made Christ the head of their local church. He's sitting off to the side. And you got people tripping and falling over it all the time. <coughs> Jesus Christ is the head of the church. He's the chief capstone. Certainly not Roy Cooper. We didn't acknowledge that. It isn't the fake president of the United States. It certainly isn't any preacher out here peddling the talking points of the government. Christ is the chief capstone. And if Christ is the head of the church, what he thinks about the decisions we make is most important. His executive orders are most important. And his executive orders that we forsake not, the gathering of ourselves together in the spiritual building, which is the church, especially in dark days. So when the government comes around again and tells you you shouldn't be gathering, just turn it off. You know, they're already talking about we need to have these no-driving Sundays where we can reduce the carbon emissions in the air. And it's funny that they would choose that day. The devil doesn't want the saints meeting together under the authority of Jesus Christ. He doesn't want a physical embodiment of the spiritual building, which is the church. And so, yeah, if they decided they wanted to improve the air quality, of course they're going to pick Sunday and say you can't drive. But when they do, we're just going to drive anyway. I mean, I'm not walking 20 miles to get over here. I'm going to drive and let them pull me over. We answer to Christ, not the world. So, if a pyramid is symbolic of the spiritual building of the church, why wouldn't the physical embodiment of the Lamb's wife mirror the spiritual building? Makes perfect sense to me. Makes sense to me. The dimensions given in Revelation 21... Indicate that it does. Length and width and height are equal. And the walls are only 216 feet high. And the whole city would be in view from its topmost capstone. See, there's no temple in this city. Why? Because the Lamb is in it. He's the chief capstone. Doesn't need a temple. Doesn't need the light of the sun. It'll be above those bodies, actually. There'll be a sun and a moon in the millennium. The Bible says in, I think it's in Isaiah, that it'll shine seven times brighter than it does now. But the city of God will be above those local bodies. Let me assure you, 100% certainty, the sun is not 91 million miles away from the earth. I see proof of that every time I walk towards sunset, when the clouds are spreading out across those plains, and I see those sun rays coming down at angles. A giant body 91 million miles away would be shooting rays straight on. These bodies are local. And they'll be shining on the earth in the millennium with a little, you know, it'll, it'll have a little more brightness to it. But the city doesn't need that stuff because it's above it. And the lamb, which is the chief capstone, is the light of it. What an incredible view from miles and miles and miles and miles away. You'd probably be able to see it from anywhere on earth during the millennial reign of Christ. I don't know how anybody would ever know the sun was 91 million miles away. We've never been there. Who measures that stuff? Who comes up with this stuff? It's enough work trying to figure out how many miles we walk in a day. 
And, and we're still not sure about that sometimes. I don't think I'm that stupid. I mean, I'm kind of a, a reasonably intelligent person. It's hard enough to measure the distance we walk in a day. Man thinks he knows so much, but he knows nothing, really. I think we have a reference to this city in Isaiah chapter 2, confirming its shape. Now that's not the right, that's not the right reference. Maybe it's 22. Let me me double check here. I'm going to have to, I've got the wrong, I've got Isaiah 2-2, but that's not correct. No, it is 2-2. It is right. I told you I'd be kind of all over the place up here this morning. Isaiah 2-2, And it shall come to pass in the last days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established in the top of the mountains. In other words, above the mountains. And shall be exalted above the hills and all nations shall flow into it. Well, that's what we're going to learn later. That the nations of those that are saved are able to flood into it. They don't live there, but they can come and go, and the gates are not shut. The mountain of the Lord's house is above the mountains. Okay? A perfect mountain is what shape? Pyramid. In fact, mountaineers speak of perfect mountains, the ones that are closest to pyramids. Okay? That's the perfect mountain. The mountain of the Lord's house is a reference to the residence of God here. Okay? I don't know of any mountains that look like a cube. Zechariah 8, verse 3, refers to both the heavenly Jerusalem and the earthly Jerusalem as existing together. Zechariah 8, verse 3, Thus saith the Lord, I, I am returned unto Zion... And will dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. And Jerusalem shall be called a city of truth. So there's a Jerusalem at this time that's called the city of truth. And the mountain of the Lord of hosts, the holy mountain. So there's a Jerusalem that will be called the city of truth. And there's a mountain of the Lord of hosts that will be called the holy mountain. So here you see the renovated, rebuilt Jerusalem the capital city on the earth, and then you have the holy mountain, which is the mountain of the Lord, the new Jerusalem, the bride, the lamb's wife, where the lamb is the chief capstone. It's the holy mountain. A perfect mountain is a perfect pyramid. (coughs) Let's go to verse 18 through 21. We've seen here 15 to 17 are the dimensions of this city. Let's look at its construction, the city's construction. Verses 18 through 21. And the building of the wall of it was of jasper, and the city was pure gold, like unto clear glass. Here we see that the wall is distinct from the city. The wall is like jasper, and the city is pure gold. So the wall is not part of the city, it's distinct. And that's why that measurement there is referring to the wall, the height of the wall. And therefore, the pyramidal shape protected by a great wall is seen from afar. The city is not hidden from view. Jasper is very hard. It's very durable. 
and it's bright. So when I think of the wall of this city, it's, it's impregnable. It's impregnable. Can't be assaulted. Can't be breached. If you remember back in chapter 4, verse 3, John is suddenly raptured up into heaven where he sees a throne. And he that sat on the throne was like a jasper. So the construction of these walls is like the very substance of God as John saw him on the throne. It's just as impregnable as the throne of God. Remember he saw a rainbow around the throne like an emerald? Rainbow. What is that? When we see a rainbow, what does that mean? Storm's over. When John is suddenly raptured into heaven at the end of the letters to the seven churches, he sees the throne of God surrounded by a rainbow. Remember what that means? When the rapture comes, guys, the storm's over for the church. It won't be long and the storm will be over for us. And our future city has walls that are like what John saw sitting on the throne. Impregnable, diamond-like walls that endure. The walls of Jasper, the city was pure gold like unto glass. Guys, this isn't common gold. Pure gold. The city was pure gold. That means all the buildings... All the edifices, all the plazas, all the materials, all the parts, all the nails, all the fittings, all the palaces, all the mansions. Pure gold. Now the word used here in Greek comes from the word that's translated glass, (coughs) like unto clear glass. The word here used in Greek, only appears here and then later in verse 21 talking about the street. And it's related to the Greek word for rain. So it's not glass like a looking glass, a mirror, or glass like molted glass that we drink of. Its clarity is related to a raindrop. It's not unpolished glass. It's clear. When John sees the sea of glass underneath the throne, and remember that sea begins to burn with fire? I talked about how that's the firmament. The word in Greek there is a little different. It means glassy. It's a little different. Glassy. This means, it's almost like it could be translated frozen rain. It's like frozen golden rain. It's related to the clarity of a raindrop. That's the type of gold we're talking about. Golden rain that's frozen solid. Pure gold. Like a fresh raindrop, solidified. That's the substance of the city. Pure and clean. When I think of jasper for the walls, I think impregnable. When I think about the makeup of the city, pure gold like clear glass... Pure, clean, not like the gold you dig out of the earth here. I mean, even my gold, wet, old gold wedding ring, I wear a platinum one now, but I couldn't keep it clean. I remember getting into a hot springs up in Alaska once on a cold night. We just went for a swim. It's 
probably 20 below outside. And we had so much fun in that hot spring. And when I got out of that hot spring, I don't know what chemicals were in that water, but my gold wedding ring was black. What in the world? And it didn't come off, and I figured, man, I've ruined my ring. Well, a few days went by and it turned back to gold. I don't know what that was. But that's not the type of gold that we're talking about here. It's not tarnished, or as James said, it doesn't get cankered. Verse 19 so the city, the walls of Jasper, the city is, itself is transparent gold, pure and clean. Then we learn about the foundations. And the foundations of the wall of the city were garnished with all manner of precious stones. <coughs> so remember, um, uh, back in verse 14, we, this, the wall has 12 foundations. And in those foundations are the names of the apostles, the 12 apostles. And we talked about that. I think one of those 12 is Paul. Not the one that was chosen by men, but the one God had chosen to replace Judas. But here we see 12 foundations. Each is distinct, distinctly garnished or covered with a unique precious stone. Now, supposedly all of the stones listed here are found in the Smithsonian Institute in Washington, D.C. And they're laid out and they match the stones of what was called the breastplate of judgment in the Old Testament. On the, it was part of the ephod of the priestly gar, high priest garments had the breastplate, had 12 stones, and each one had the, a name of one of the tribes of Israel. So these are the same stones, uh, basically, and they match up with that. The first foundation was jasper. Jasper, is, like I said, is, is hard and durable and bright. It's like a transparent crystal. The second, sapphire. Sapphire is a blue stone. You can find sapphire in mass right here in North Carolina. It's also found in Persia and Wales. Those are the three places where there's a lot of sapphire. A blue stone. The third, a chalcedony. Chalcedony has a translucent pale cast of blue, yellow, and purple. It's a combination of blue, yellow, and purple. That's interesting. Beautiful. The fourth, an emerald. An emerald's a, a green stone. One of the largest emeralds in history. A great emerald was actually presented to Cortez, the Spanish conquistador, by the Aztec king Montezuma when the Spanish entered the Aztec capital of Tenoch... I never could pronounce that. Tenochtitlan on November 8th. 1519. They called it the Emerald of Judgment, this great emerald. And that emerald that Cortez later gave to his second wife ended becoming uh, what led to his downfall. Covetousness and, and attachment to worldly things. But the emerald is an incredibly beautiful uh, stone, a green stone. It's been the basis for the downfall of great men, too. The fifth, verse 20, a sardonyx. Sardonyx is a reddish white, kind of like a man's fingernail. So think of a gemstone that has a glory that's of the same hue as a fingernail. The sixth, a sargis. Sargis is a blood color. 
In fact, what John sees on the throne is like jasper and like a sardine stone, a sardius. So this is referred to in chapter 4, verse 3, the throne of God as well. So a jasper glory, but also a blood color. The seventh chrysolite. Chrysolite's a gold stone so brilliant, the color of a pure chrysolite, that one found in the 14th century was said to shine through the cloth. If you wrapped it in cloth, it would shine through the cloth. That's the testimony of one that was found in the 14th century. It's that brilliant. The eighth, a barrel. A barrel's like, imagine frozen fire. It's a barrel. A foundation that looks like frozen fire. That's amazing. The ninth, a topaz. A topaz is very hard and transparent. It's a beautiful yellow. Topaz was, good topaz in ancient times was found in Ethiopia. In fact, the glory of the topaz of Ethiopia is referenced in Job. And guess what Job says is more valuable than even the topaz of Ethiopia? Wisdom. <clears throat> Wisdom's more valuable. So as we're talking about these things, remember wisdom in God's Word is more valuable than all this stuff. And at least in its earthly form. The tenth is a, chrys- uh, a chrysoprasus. A chrysoprasus. This is a golden green color. The 11th, a hyacinth. A hyacinth is a deep or dusky red-yellow. And then the 12th, an an amethyst, a light purple. That's quite a collection of colors. I mean, I don't even think I could really say much other than what's written here or what I've said to add to it. I mean, just the names themselves are exotic. It's hard to imagine. These, These stones seem to match the 12 stones of the breastplate of judgment. There are some different words used there in Exodus 28, but it seems to be a reference to the same stones. Part of the breastplate. And the names of the children of Israel were etched on the breastplate according to the order of their birth. And so some people have gone to try to figure out what foundation matches what tribe. I'm not going to get into any of that. Um, It's not necessary. But think about this. We have foundations that bear the same stones as did the breastplate of judgment worn by the high priest. It was a symbol of his authority over the tribes of Israel. Think about this. But is it the tribes of Israel that are etched on the foundations in the New Jerusalem? No. They're etched on the gates. What's etched on the foundations? The names of the apostles. Now, so in other words, the apostles are associated with authority. And the very stones that bore the names of the tribe of Israel that were worn on the breast of the chief spiritual authority of the nation, the high priest. Now, think about something Jesus said in Luke chapter 22. And I think we see its fulfillment here. See, when Jesus says something, he means it. And what he says is going to come true, and it's going to come true quite literally. 
Luke 22. He's speaking to his disciples at the Last Supper. <coughs> and he, you know, he, he's talking about being, being a servant. You know, don't be like the Gentiles. The Gentiles are trying to exercise authority over each other. And they're asking, you know, who's going to be greatest in the kingdom? All these type of things. In fact, there was a strife amongst them after the Lord's Supper. They even got in an argument over who's going to be greatest. And it's in this context that Jesus said, Ye are they which have continued with me in my temptations. And I appoint unto you a kingdom, as my Father hath appointed unto me, that ye may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom, and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. So Jesus told his apostles that one day you're, you've continued with me in these temptations and you're going to be the object of the same type of suffering I, I am. You don't understand it now. But I've appointed you a kingdom. It's as good as done. Stop arguing over who's going to be greatest because you're all going to sit with me at my table and you're going to sit on 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. That was the promise of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, if you look at the opinions of Talmudic or um, uh, I just lost my train of thought. The Judaism of the rabbis, the Talmudic Judaism, not biblical Judaism. Aside from Jesus Christ himself, there's probably no, there, 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 there are no other 12 Jews in all of Jewish history that are hated more than the 12 apostles of the Lamb. And probably hated most of all, second to Jesus himself only, is Paul the Apostle. In fact, if you look in the Talmuds and all the oral traditions, there are things said in there about the Lord Jesus Christ that even the Quran or a Muslim wouldn't even dare to say. At least the Quran harbors a superstitious respect for Jesus. There are things written in some of the Talmudic writings by the Orthodox uh, rabbinical Judaism that say and speak of Jesus Christ in a way that even a Muslim would never speak of him. And they say awful, awful things about the apostles as well. One day, the ones that were hated and blasphemed by those that said they are Jews, but they really aren't. They're the synagogue of Satan. They're going to judge, stand in judgment over the nation that hated them. And it's going to turn out that Jesus is the Jewish Messiah, and his apostles did preach the truth, and they're going to sit on 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. I'm reminded of what's said to Smyrna in Philadelphia in the letters to the seven churches. Jesus refers to the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews but are really the synagogue of Satan. They were the object. They were persecuting the Smyrna believers, the Jews were. And Jesus said, don't fear. Fear none of those things which you shall suffer. These Jews aren't really Jews at all. They, they think they're doing me service. They're the synagogue of Satan. And then later, Philadelphia... Jesus promises the church at Philadelphia that keeps His word that the synagogue of Satan Jews will know the truth and will come to worship before the feet 
of those Jewish followers of Messiah that they so despised. One day, the Messianic Jewish follower of the Lord Jesus Christ so hated by Talmudic Judaism, Talmudic Judaism is going to know that they were right and that the Messiah is, was Jesus Christ of Nazareth. And they're going to come and worship before the feet of those they once despised. I see these 12 foundations as the ultimate fulfillment of this. Jesus said something and he meant it. And it's revealed right here, even in the construction of the new city. It's the names of the 12 apostles that have a place of prominence that match up with the breastplate of judgment in the Old Testament. Now, make no mistake, I love the Jewish people. God used the Jewish people to give the world the word of God. And for that reason, I can know the true God, the God of Israel. And I can know the Savior, the Messiah of Israel, Yeshua HaMashiach, Jesus the Messiah. But please understand that just as the Jews were chosen by God to give us the scriptures, and just as God has a purpose and a plan for the nation of Israel in the future, whereby she will recognize her sin, and whereby what the prophets said, a nation that would, or a people that would yet be born, a generation that yet be born would have their eyes open, and she will be restored. Those promises aren't changed. And yes, they are beloved. Even though they're enemies of the gospel, many of those, especially the rabbis, they're beloved for the election's sake. Understand that a lot of these Jewish folks out here in places of power that talk about such evil... That evil Jew up there in that U.S. Senate, his name's Chuck Schumer, he compared that wicked, pedophile-enabling dummy. I mean, the lady's a dummy. Let's just be straight up. And that dumminess has absolutely nothing to do with her skin color. I mean, she's dumb. But he compared the appointment of that pedophile gatekeeper to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ in terms of its importance. Now, that guy's a Jew by birth. He's got Jewish blood, and he says he's a Jew, but Jesus says he's the synagogue of Satan. Amen. And one of, the, one of these days, that wicked Jew is going to bow down before the Jew that knows his Messiah. Some of the most evil people on this planet are Jews. It's true. Oh, that's an anti-Semitic statement. No, it's not. It's a fact. But the most righteous man that ever lived was a Jew. And a Jew saved my life and gave me eternal life. Be careful. The synagogue of Satan is real. But one day, the Jew that was despised because of his faith in Messiah is going to have a place of prominence and authority. And those 12 apostles that were hated so much and worried so much about who's going to be greatest. Jesus said, don't worry about that. I've appointed you a kingdom, and one day you'll sit on 12 thrones. And what Jesus said is going to come to pass. And all these years later, as John is seeing these things, I can't help but think he remembered those words of Christ. Because right here is the ultimate fulfillment. Just give me a few minutes. I want to get through verse 21. So we've seen the foundations, the beautiful stones there. Verse 21. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls. Every several gate was of one pearl. And the street of the city was pure gold. 
as it were, transparent glass. Now, there are two little cliches that Christians use that are allusions to this verse, but in my mind, those cliches are incorrect. A lot of the cliches we use really aren't right. We talk about the pearly gates, and we talk about the streets of gold. Well, when I read this verse, technically, that's not even correct. These are two technically inaccurate cliches thrown around by Christians. You know, the ones that like to talk about pearly gates and streets of gold the most are the ones that wouldn't dare talk about that one-word one solution to our nation's problems. The one that Jesus used over and over again, repent. So when you hear pearly gates and streets of gold talked about a lot, usually that word repent's never mentioned. Keep that in mind. But we're told there are 12 gates. We learned this earlier that the wall has 12 gates. There's three on each side. It kind of uh, mirrors the arrangement of the camp of Israel. And each gate is associated, each respective gate is associated with the name of the tribe of Israel. And there are angels that guard these gates not to prohibit entrance like at the Garden of Eden after Adam and Eve were kicked out, but to allow entrance. Guards to allow entrance, not bar it. So we learned about this earlier in the chapter. But here we're told that John sees 12 gates and the gates were 12 pearls. Guys, they're not pearly. They're pearls. They're not pearly. They're not like pearls. Each gate's a giant pearl. It's a pearl. 12 great pearls. Now, when you find a pearl, you know, pearls are kind of ugly looking before they're refined and made into the circles. Some of the largest pearls ever found look like these globulous looking, but they're gorgeous. But each gate is a giant pearl. It's like a circle or a sphere. I imagine a hobbit door, but it's not flat. It's three-dimensional. Now, I can't comprehend that, but I believe what the Word says. A giant pearl is the gate, and the gate is open. Now, we're not told the size of this pearl, but if the gate was only one-tenth the height of the wall, which is 216 feet high, let's just assume the gate's only one-tenth of the height of the wall, then that pearl would be 20 feet in diameter. Now, that's pretty incredible. We used to go to Bangladesh, and Bangladesh is one of the places where you find a lot of pearls. And they've got, you can buy pearls cheap over there. And not just white ones, pink ones, black ones, beautiful pearls. And I, we, I just bought Jamie Pearl Necklace over there. Pearl earrings because they're cheap and they're beautiful. I never expected in that poor and dumpy of a country you'd have such beautiful pearls common. But the largest pearl that was ever found is called the Pearl of Puerto. It was found just in 1996. And some Filipino fishermen had found it, but they had kept it secret for 10 years. So it was found back in the 80s, and they wrapped it in a cloth and hid it under a bed. And it finally came to, 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 the, to, to, to the public in 96. <coughs> and it's the largest pearl ever found. And it's 26 inches in diameter. So you're talking a little more than two feet. So the largest pearl ever found, 26 inches in diameter. If this gate is only a tenth of the height of the wall, which it might be bigger than that, it's more than 20 feet in diameter. 
Go look it up online. It's interesting. The Pearl of Puerto. There's a picture of it. Look at some of the largest pearls ever found. They're not circles. They're not spheres. Some of them are kind of... I don't, I don't know what to call it. Glob. They look like globs or blobs. But beautiful. But we're not talking pearly gates. We're talking gates that are pearls. And then we're told that the street of the city was pure gold. Now, I don't see streets. I see street. We talk about streets of gold. There's a street. It doesn't say streets. It says street. I take it to mean what it says. This new Jerusalem is not a complicated network of alleys, avenues, back streets, and intersections. Anytime you have that mess in a city, you have disorder and chaos. There ain't no disorder or chaos in this city. There's a street. There's one main avenue. It's 1,500 miles long. And it's paved with pure, transparent gold. One main avenue of traffic. Now, there may be sideways and side routes and going into the mansions and going into the parks and exploring the forest and the river life. And there may be all that kind of stuff. But there's no traffic jams, and there's no stoplights, and there's no backwood alleys where you're going to get lost. And even if you do get lost, it's not a bad thing. The street of the city was pure gold, as it were, transparent glass. Now, so just next time you say, walk in the streets of gold... You might walk the street of gold. I mean, I'm just trying to be accurate. That's what it says here. Now think about this, and I said it earlier. People, they go to war, they fight, they connive, they betray, they steal, they lie, they worry about, they lose sleep over, they hoard, they destroy, and they'll lose everything, even their families, over gold down here. (coughs) In the New Jerusalem, you walk on it. You don't hoard it. You walk on it. It's the pavement under your feet. What is so coveted here is just pavement under the feet of the saints. And you won't need to take your shoes off when you leave the street in the New Jerusalem to go inside your mansion. You don't need to. It won't be filth and dirt. You're walking on a street of gold. And from there you can walk to your house and don't have to worry about it. You know, most of the sickness and stuff and dirt and filth in this country would be fixed if we just take our shoes off before we come into our house. Like the, even the third world village people know to do that. Now, I don't do it. My wife wishes I would, but I don't. So I speak as one who's guilty of not taking my shoes off. Maybe I wouldn't have this cold if we just take our shoes off before walking inside. Here, now, gold is precious. Some people hoard it up. Some people have it in their jewelry. Some people, I have a gold coin somewhere. It's actually buried, and I know where it's buried. There's a map. Here, our gold is canker. It's cankered. And its rust is a witness against those that covet it. I'm almost finished. James chapter 5. 
verses 2 and 3, James is, well, I'll start at verse 1. Go to now, you rich men, weep and howl, for your miseries shall come upon you. Your riches are corrupted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver is cankered, and the rust of them shall be a witness against you and shall eat your flesh as it were fire. Ye have heaped treasure together for the last days. Understand that all these people heaping their treasure together are just heaping it together to be stolen and destroyed. So what Solomon says really is true. Better is a handful with quietness than both hands full of riches and all the stress that comes with it. Because the best we can have here is cankered. And if we know what awaits us, as Abraham did, maybe it should be easy to pack up and go to another land when God calls us. There's no cankering, there's no rust in the new Jerusalem. Just gold, pure and like transparent glass. All of this stuff today, should Christians be preppers? Should we be hoarding up a bunch of stuff for the, da- for the dark days and building underground bunkers and hoarding up food that we're never going to eat that's going to end up going bad anyway? I don't think so. I think we can spend a lot of energy doing that stuff that could be spent furthering the gospel. Now, I'm not suggesting you shouldn't be wise like the ant. I'm not suggesting you shouldn't have a savings account and, and maybe have a, 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 you know, some kind of a, a currency that's not fiat currency and that you shouldn't have maybe some extra food or go kill a cow and freeze it. Now, realize, though, you can be like my buddy who spent all this money raising a cow and froze it, and then the, the, heat, the freezer broke down, and he didn't know it, and he went to get some hamburger out one day, and it was all lost. Now, that could happen to any one of us. We could spend all this energy hoarding up stuff and just lose it in a moment. I don't think we ought to be hoarders or preppers. I think we ought to be wise and there's a big difference. Now, we could sit here and talk about where our money system's going to crash and i got to get my money out of the bank and i got to do this and this and this and this. Maybe we just need to be wise with the moment, do what we can do, and just leave the rest in God's hand. Because the Bible says that He will never leave us or forsake us. And the proof is this city right here. That's the proof that John saw. Now, what we're talking about is a future city. We're talking about the bride. God's residence, the spiritual building of the church made physical. And those details ought to give us cause for joy and praise. They ought to motivate us, compel us. I don't even want to use that word motivate anymore after Eric preached about it being a weak word. It is a weak word. It ought to compel us to praise God. But I want to make two quick applications in the here and now. What good is it? To talk about the by and by if we can't make an application now. And I think that both Peter and Job make those applications for us. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 7. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to His abundant mercy hath begotten us again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. This city is a lively hope. To an inheritance 
incorruptible and undefiled and that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you. Peter is talking about this city. That's what he's talking about. It's an inheritance, incorruptible, undefiled, can't be cankered or stolen or decay like treasures here on earth. Reserved in heaven for you who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Wherein ye greatly rejoice, though now for a season, if need be, you are in heaviness through manifold temptations. In other words, we can rejoice in this inheritance even in the midst of trial and temptation. Now look what he says. If need be, you are in heaviness through manifold temptations. We can rejoice because the trial of your faith being much more precious than of gold that perisheth, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Understand this. The earthly forms... There are earthly forms of all of these stones and all of these materials that we read about today. And the earthly forms are glorious and they're precious and they're coveted and they're valuable. But understand that the trying of your faith, the trials and tribulations that draw you closer to the Lord and sanctify you in the midst of this wicked world are much more valuable than all the earthly forms of these metals. Every one of those stones as it's found on earth, the trine of your faith is more precious than that. Job, I don't want to read too much. I know the hour's late. We got started a little bit later on the preaching than we do sometimes. So I, I wanted to go short today, but it just never happened. But you don't have to listen to me for a long time. So It's only going to be one Sunday, so let's just make it good. Job 28 I'm just going to read a couple. The entire verse, the, the entire parable of Job here is, is worth reading and meditating upon. He starts in chapter 26. And his parable in answer to the accusation of his friends goes through chapter 30. And then in chapter 31 he kind of gives his final arguments and the point he's trying to make. But Job 28 is an interesting read, and it mirrors what Solomon says in Proverbs and Ecclesiastes. 28 verse 12, But where shall wisdom be found, and where is the place of understanding? Verse 15, It cannot be gotten, wisdom cannot be gotten for gold, neither shall silver be weighed for the price thereof. It cannot be valued with the gold of Ophir, with the precious onyx or the sapphire. The gold and the crystal cannot equal it, and the exchange of it shall not be for jewels of fine gold. No mention shall be made of coral or of pearls, for the price of wisdom is above rubies. The topaz of Ethiopia shall not equal it, neither shall it be valued with pure gold. In this, then verse 28. And unto man he said, Behold the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And to depart from evil is understanding. Understand that the fear of God, the fear you have for Him, the faith you have in Him, the wisdom that comes for that, from that, it's of far more value than the earthly forms of all these. Did you notice when I read those verses, there was a lot of the gemstones and the materials that we saw mentioned today. 
The earthly forms of those are precious and they're valuable. And men do horrible things and they covet them. But not only the trial of our faith, but the fear of the Lord and the wisdom that comes from it, that's more valuable than any of these earthly riches. We need to seek that. It's wisdom. Knowledge begats wisdom begats discretion. What I talked about last week. In the beginning of all that's the fear of the Lord. So if you'll fear God and you end up suffering a little bit for the sake of Jesus Christ, you're a rich man. And you have riches far beyond what this world can offer. So those are just a couple of things that came to mind. Uh, We'll end there. So we've talked about the city's descent, its substance, its walls, um, its dimensions, its construction. Next time we're going to look at its nightlife. It's got some nightlife and it's got civic affairs. The city has a nightlife and there's some civic affairs. And then we'll get into chapter 22, hopefully, before the end of the year. And we'll look at these last admonitions (coughs) from the book of Revelation. And uh, hopefully we can finish it up before we've been before the ten year anniversary. Let's pray, Father. We thank you for your word. We thank you for this precious promise that's been revealed to us. Your word says, "Eye has not seen, neither ear heard the things which God hath prepared for those that love Him." But you have revealed them to us by your Spirit. And by your Spirit, these things were revealed to John, and they are revealed to us. And they are a source of great comfort and joy, and we praise you. And Lord, how pale it makes the earthly riches that men so covet seem in the light of that inheritance. Help us to be like Abraham and those that died in faith, not having received the promises, but were persuaded of them and confessed them embrace them and they confess that they were strangers and pilgrims in the earth for they that say such things declare plainly they seek a country and truly if they had been mindful of that country from whence they came out they might have had opportunity to return but now they seek a better country that is in heavenly wherefore God is not ashamed to be called their God for he hath prepared for them a city Lord may that be us may these glimpses you have given us compel us to embrace your promises and to live as strangers and pilgrims. Lord, because we know that the trine of our faith and we know that the fear of God and the wisdom that comes from the word of God, those things are far more valuable than all of earth's riches put together. And that one day you have prepared for us mansions, not rooms. In your Father's house, Lord Jesus, are many mansions and you've prepared for us an inheritance incorruptible. So help us, Lord, in these dark days to lay up for ourselves treasure in heaven where moth and rust don't corrupt and thieves can't break in and steal. Help us to be a light, to look for opportunity to praise you, to have joy even in these vexing days because of what awaits us. Lord, as we go forth to serve you this week, when we walk out that door, we enter the mission field. And may the light of your countenance be seen in our faces this lost and dying world in this country, a country where we're watching its fall and we're watching its demise. There's no hope for America. There's hope for Americans through the gospel. Help us to preach it. Bless the food we're about to eat in our fellowship. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.